So, I mean, sex in a sand trap. Can we just talk about that for a second as really, really, you know, logistically difficult? I mean, well, you're never gonna. It's never gonna be pleasant with Lars von Trier. You know, it's right. sort of. You get what you pay for. I mean, whilst wearing the wedding dress on top. I mean, it just. It, it seems to be as much of a distancing move as it possibly can be, right? Well, and it's shot from afar. It's it's shot from afar in a way Thank that feels goodness. kind of distant and voyeuristic, but uh, judgy. Mm-hmm. I don't yeah. know about judgy, though. I feel like this this movie's mostly on Justine's side. I don't, yeah, I think the movie's sympathetic to Justine, it. yeah. But, um, yeah, the sand's no good. Yeah. Uh, to, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm right there with Anakin Skywalker. It's it's coarse and it gets everywhere. Yeah, Who needs I, it? I don't even like going to the beach. I, I can't imagine just, you know, anything beyond that. I just, yeah awful i like the beach well enough but yeah it sure is hard to leave the beach there right yeah exactly i'm always bringing beach with me i I do like to surf i do like to be in the water proper but as far as like actually on the beach gathering stuff i no. if i'm not in the water i'm going home that's my general oh see i I sort of am game for a lounge and look at the waves sort of sort of like justine gazing up at melancholia yeah you know i mean i think it is kind of a good vacation to just sort of watch a planet come yeah you know hey look sometimes impending disasters happen and all you can do is sort of watch them unfold and hope for the best yeah um you know or perhaps don't look up i'm not sure but more on that i'm sure later uh hello everybody welcome again to the good trash genre cast you're gonna say something dalton Oh, I'm just confirming that we'll talk about Don't Look Up Again. <laughs> That's all. Uh, uh, we uh, we talk about the films we've ever discussed at Film Space Course, unless it's January or into February, in which we do our anti-trash marathons. This month's anti-trash marathon is uh, science fiction anti-trash, and this uh, week's film is Lars von Trier's Melancholia. Uh, so uh, that's what we're talking about. I'm still Dustin. I'm still Arthur. I am still Dalton. And uh, we are here to talk about that. Uh, in case you are tuning into the Good Trash Honorcast for the very first time, we want to warn you, dear listener, this is not a review show. It's an analysis show. And that does mean we will spoil this movie. And uh, we will tell you what will happen with the planet and such. Uh, it may end the exact same way as Don't Look Up or not. But we're going to avoid saying that for the first part of the show by doing this. We'll do a synopsis, spoiler-free, thumbs-up, thumbs-down review, spoiler-light. We'll do a little exercise called to span the syllabus, spoiler-gentle. And then lastly, we will get down to business. There'll be music to tell you we've gotten down to business, and that's going to be spoiler-hard and heavy. All right, so with that in hand, uh, Mr. Arthur Gordon, can you delight us with that synopsis, please? With the historic approach of the planet Melancholia looming, Justine's world begins to unravel on her wedding night. Her family, relationships, and career are all tested. In the wake of that night, a larger threat begins to close in. Dun, dun, dun. Uh, we'll find out if Ant Steelbreaker strikes back again here in just a minute, but let's talk about our thumbs-up, thumbs-down reviews. Have either of you seen this movie before? No. No, no, first time for both of us, I think. Both of you are virgin viewers. Well, then, in that case, I go to you first, Arthur. What is your initial reaction to Melancholia? Yeah, it's okay. Um, <laughs> it uh, it is uh, it's uh, very well made. I didn't know. Uh, I have not seen a Von Trier film before, so I mean, there were certain expectations to be set. Um, but it's milder than most of those expectations, I think, from this course about other works he has done. Um, 
I don't love the cinematography in the first act. I get why he does it. Uh, I just don't love that kind of camera movement. I think it's more of a personal style thing. Uh, Kirsten Dunst is great. Um, so is, oh, is Charlotte Gainsborough. Is that the sister? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. She's great as well. So, I mean, the whole cast is good, I think, for the most part. Um, it's really interesting because he uses this kind of heightened, stilted dialogue, uh, which isn't natural for anybody, but I think it's, you know, kind of a unique aspect of what's going on in the movie. Um, so I think that's cool. Uh, I think there's a lot here to like. Uh, I, I think that I was very confused through Justine's part because I thought I missed something. Um, but upon reading, I didn't miss anything. It was just kind of very keeping you at arm's length and very intentional in doing that. You already kind of alluded to that uh, golf uh, scene, um, which I think does that with the, the camera work there. But I think everything done within that first part of the film, it's split into two parts. Uh, I think the things done in that first part are, are de- designated to keep you at an arm's length uh, from the events going on here. Um, so I think those are really interesting choices that are made. Uh, I, I think it moves really well. I like Claire's uh, part, I think, a little more. I like that tighter personal drama uh, thing that's going on there. It feels a little more focused. Um, but yeah, I, I like I like what it does. I like where it goes. It has a great opening. I mean, that opening sequence is a fantastic. It's just phenomenal. Uh, I don't know why this independent Danish film from 2011 looks better than most Marvel films from 2021, but here we are. Um, it's so such a cool sequence, though, that, that kind of slow motion, choppy vignette thing that they're doing is really cool in that sequence. Um, it's like 10 minutes before we get any dialogue, uh, which is also a really fun choice. Um, and then there, there is some kind of nice humanity sprinkled throughout. Um and I like the ending. Uh, I, I do like that. We'll talk about that, I'm sure. But uh, yeah, it's a good movie. It, it's really good. I wasn't blown away um, by it by any means, but I, I think it's really well made, uh, really interesting. I would revisit it um, for sure. So uh, I, I think it's a good first introduction to Von Trier, um, I, I'm assuming, but uh, that's where I stand on it. All righty. Well, thank you very much for that, Mr. Arthur Gordon. What do you think, Dalton, upon your first watch of Melancholia? Uh, does it stand up to all the hype? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it does. I really like this movie. Uh, I, I am something of a Von Trier novice as well, Arthur. Um, I've only seen Antichrist, uh, which is tougher. a lot. <laughs> tougher. <laughs> much, much tougher. Yeah, much more unpleasant. Uh, it's a lot more movie. Uh, th- this is, yeah, definitely a, a different sort of film uh from his others uh you know again that's a lot of that's from what i've heard obviously but uh, i've heard enough uh but this is difficult in its own way you know um it's it's a pretty challenging film as far as uh the frankness with which it depicts uh depression and you know we we talk about mental health some on this show i don't talk about my own mental health a lot but uh, somebody who who deals with depression uh, this is, I found this a really powerful film. Uh, I, I think it's, you know, it's ability to show Justine at her ugliest and her most vulnerable and still, well, I guess while also showing her at her most vulnerable, um, it, it does allow you to, to never lose empathy, never lose sight of her, her. you know, it never is, it, it's interesting the ways in which it, it can let, let it go ugly 
you know, without ever feeling like it's damning, um, which I, that's that's a fine line to walk. Uh, you know, it's 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 pretty tough, and I think it's done very well here. Uh, Arthur's already talked about the visuals, and yeah, I'm I'm gonna echo him on on that opening sequence. I think it's great. It is 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 it a pretentious to open your movie with the Solaris reference by referencing the same painting? Probably, but you know, sometimes. Uh, a movie calls for that and i think this might be one of them uh big big fan of that opening sequence that sort of foreshadows the entire film for us and then lays out some uh, some of what's to come um the the second act I, i'm with arthur i think i prefer it um because i do like the tightness of that family drama uh but i actually like the camera work uh in part one okay uh, you know i know he's kind of doing his dogma 95 thing in that first half uh, especially, and I kind of go for it. I like the way in which it, it puts you in Justine's headspace, right? Puts you in her, her subjective experience of this wedding. And it is one sort of claustrophobic and unnerving while also sort of feels time warpy as, as Arthur alluded to, there is, there is sort of a quality to that first half that makes you feel like, am I missing things or no? Nope, okay. no, nope, This is just what's going on. Okay, cool. Um, I, I will say it, especially, uh, as I'm enjoying this, uh, blank check series on Jane Campion, uh, a filmmaker famous for having somebody pee in basically every one of her movies. Uh, I love it when people got to go to the bathroom in movies and that's what I'll leave my review on. I think it's funny. Uh, it's, it's weird to uh, take these, these, uh, whether they're big giant pieces of entertainment, uh, you know, theme park rides or their quote unquote cinema, wh- whatever it is, putting somebody on camera, having to go to the bathroom, that just brings it all down to a human level that I really appreciate. Uh, but yeah, I can't wait to, to crack this movie open and talk about it in a little bit more depth as we get further into the show. Cause I think there's a whole lot there. All righty. Well, thank you very much, Mr. Dalton Stewart. Um, I have seen this movie three or four times now, I think at this point, and I have seen a handful of Von Trier films, not a ton. I've seen Antichrist. I've seen part of the idiots. I've seen part. I think I've seen dancer in the dark, the one with Bjork in it. And then I've seen The House that Jack Built recently and um, Manderley. Uh, I'm surprised you haven't seen Dog. I'm surprised you haven't seen Dogville. It makes sense that you've seen House of Jack Built. Uh, I haven't got to it yet. It was on a streaming service that I had access to, and then it dropped from that particular streaming service, so it was no longer in my watch list, and I never replaced it in any of my various watch lists of uh, things I was trying to get to. And I was not on a Von Trier kick any longer, so the sort of timing uh, played itself out badly, but uh, it's a movie I do want to catch still. But uh, anyway, so I've seen a handful of his movies uh, and uh, what I've seen, I've liked. Uh, And uh, this movie, I like a lot. I like how this movie isn't a dogma movie and yet still kind of nods towards dogma uh, because it is very, very artificial. Um, And uh, we see this sort of in later Von Trier where he gets really, really uh, interested in using the various tricks and deceits that cinema can offer to meditate in uh, a more philosophical sense on the, the truth of a given moment. Oh, I did, I did mention I have seen Nymphomaniac. Um, as, both, yeah. both, both volumes? Both volumes. That feels like very worth mentioning. Yeah, those are the sort of the two that I hear as being the most trying, and that I was, think I'm, I'm, I think I'm out on the. Those yeah, two. don't, don't. It was work. Don't. Just, just, just. Yeah. Don't. I could see myself getting to dancer in the dark. I don't. I don't think I'm getting around to those 
uh, it's a little, yeah. little too little too mean-spirited for my taste. Out. Yeah, as I look at the uh, Von Trier list, I've actually done better than I thought uh, as far as uh, getting through uh, Uncle Larzy there. Uh, so uh, I guess I'm proud of me. But don't be proud of me because it's painful for the most part. But I do find this maybe to be his most joyous and life-affirming film. Yeah, um, I agree. I, Again, I, of the two I've seen. And and that's a weird thing to say. Dance in the Dark's got something going on with it, too. But um, anyway, I, I like it a lot. I do love... Uh, you mentioned the uh, painting from Solaris. There is another painting, uh, the Melies painting of Ophelia uh, in the Drowning in the River uh, that is recreated uh, in, in kind yeah. of tableau with Kirsten Dunst um, laying in a river in her wedding dress also. Yeah. So this is really artistically informed as uh, a film in ways that, I, again, I find to be interesting. I don't have a lot to say about it, um, but I am blown away just by the sheer craft of the film, I think. So uh, performances are great. Gainsborough is great. Kiefer is good. I like Kiefer. Um you know, which is, um, I mean, not surprising, really. I generally like Kiefer in most of what he does. And so, yeah, uh, it's a winner for me. And I'm looking forward also to uncracking this film with you, my dear friends. So there you go, dear listener. I do believe, though, now your syllabus just got much longer. Uh, we are now going to expand the syllabus. No, you didn't get longer. It's going to get longer because we're going to do that now. Sorry. Uh, You're really Dalton, out of shape, bud. Explain. I, it's been forever since we've been together and I forgot everything. Dalton, explain what's hey. happening. Besides me Dustin, losing my mind. Oh, you're fine. Look, it's important to always be a beginner. We're all, it's it's always been a long time since we've recorded. You know, it's it's always a, a time to take a fresh take at it. Um, my syllabus is it's the end of the world as we know it, and I don't feel fine. We're going to be looking at movies where we use the end of the world or some sort of cataclysm. Maybe not necessarily the absolute end of the world, uh, but we're we're going to look at films that have a apocalyptic or cataclysmic event uh, and look at them uh, as metaphors because so many of, of these films that I've assembled I think use these um, catastrophes uh, really effectively to to be metaphors uh, or at the very least to explore a, 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 a issue of the day um, so we'd be looking at you know some films concerned with uh, our climate anxieties um, necessarily I think uh, those would be first reformed uh, a, a film that along with melancholy I think does a, a really good job of dealing with uh, the disease of depression and, and dealing with it seriously while, you know, uh, dealing it with, with uh, humanity and empathy uh, very effectively, I think. Uh, so we'd look at those. We'd look at the recent uh, Netflix film, Don't Look Up, of course, uh, because it also is about a, a rogue celestial body and it's an uh, impending pathway, although boy, could a film not be more different than Melan... Could two films not be more different than Melancholy and Don't Look Up? Uh, very... Very different films as far as what how they're exploring uh, the end of the world, both as a, a, a literal thing and as a metaphor. Uh, I'd like to look at the the film Take Shelter. I don't know if you guys remember this one uh, with oh, like yeah. Shannon and yeah. uh, Jessica Chastain. Jeff Nichols. Yeah, Jeff Nichols. Thank you. Uh, I couldn't think of his name. Uh, like that movie a lot. I've only seen it the once, but it, uh, you know, it came around around the same time as Melancholia. And I think while Melancholia is a really effective film about depression, I think that's a, an equally effective film about anxiety. Yeah, um, I like that. 
I like that pairing. Yeah, yeah, it's a really like that movie, and I, I think it does a lot of the same things that Melancholia does for for that other that other ailment of the brain uh, that so many of us deal with. Um, I, I, we'd also look at the exterminating angels. Uh, is, wait, at, at, Dustin, is it angels plural or singular? I can never. It's remember. A, a singular exterminating angel. It's just the one exterminating angel, and that's a film dealing with uh, class anxieties. Uh, Capital in general, uh, really good Boonwell film that we've discussed on the show. Um, Doctor Strange Love, Nuclear Devastation, of course, we'd have to look at that. It is sort of a big end of the world movie, and I think we'd also look at uh, maybe The World's End, the uh, Simon Pegg and Nick Frost, mm. and um, oh my gosh, Edgar Wright film um, that you know it is about sort of the end of the world through the lens of growing up and how that can be sort of terrifying for some folks, especially the older you get, uh, you know, it's, it's a film that's more about middle age than uh, adulthood uh, proper or whatever. Um, but I, I think that's a very effective film that just sort of dealing with uh, aging and, and using the, the sort of apocalyptic conditions as metaphor uh, again. All, and that's sort of what we're looking for in all of these. The one that I find, I don't know, maybe the, not necessarily the most interesting, but definitely uh, the most chaotic uh, is Mother, and that's probably the last film we'll talk about um, because I, I think it's using sort of uh, it's it's got a, a mixed bag. And a lot of these films we have noisy filmmakers, uh, meaning I, I think with a lot of these films we have filmmakers who've talked a lot about what they think their movie is about, especially with Don't Look Up and especially with Mother. Uh, do we find uh, two filmmakers who've talked a lot about their movies? Uh, and I think we'd maybe look at that for some context. Uh, we'd probably also talk about uh, Timothy Morton's idea, uh, hyper objects. Um, we'll talk about that more in uh, uh, analysis time, but uh, that's uh, something I've learned about recently that I'm Ooh, pretty- hyper objects. Exciting. Yeah. Yeah. So anyway, that's, that's what we'll talk about in the class, sort of both these large scale catastrophes and these interpersonal demons and how that in these stories, they can intersect and uh, sort of inform each other in interesting ways. Alrighty, well, thank you very much for that. I think that's a fantastic syllabus, Mr. Dalton Stewart. What syllabus do you bring us, Mr. Arthur Gordon? I think I would take a national cinema approach, and I would talk about Danish cinema. Um, I think historically uh, it's been a very important cinema uh, because of some of the names it has given us, but also uh, some of the works and movements it has put out. And so it's not a cinema I'm super familiar with, though. I know names and titles, and I've seen a couple of things here and there. Um, but I think the ones we would do here, and this might be a section in a war- larger world cinema class, but it's definitely a cinema that could be expanded into its own class, I believe. And so we may uh, take a look at uh, Small Nation Global Cinema, the new Danish cinema uh, from Methjort, uh, which discusses... Uh, the effects of globalization with the culture and economy of a privileged small nation. It's all about Danish cinema and looking at the movements there and the people involved there, uh, especially probably the Nogba 95 movement. Um, So I think that's the book we might use. Uh, And then for our film selections, we're going to go back to the beginning. Uh, I think we got to talk about the man, the goat, Carl T.H. Dreyer. Um, And I mentioned passion of Jean of Arc uh, all the time. So instead we would watch Van Peter, uh, there mm. and get to look at a kind of a drastically different movie from uh the passion of joan of arc uh I, I think it is still it's very experimental uh, very special effect driven um very ethereal and transcendental um 
uh, but a, a very different movie, I think, from Joan of Arc. Uh, so that's uh, where we would start. Uh, we would also take a look at Benjamin Christensen's Haxon, uh, another good uh, horror movie I believe he makes out of uh, Denmark, but uh, another figure birthed from that cinema. Uh, in 1972, the Danish Film Institute was founded to allocate funds to filmmakers. So we start to talk about how motor production changes and shifts uh, at that time. Um, and then from there, uh, we got to talk about what I think would be a, probably a strong run um, because the Danish cinema has a, a, a pretty good showing uh, at the Academy. Uh, I think they're pretty beloved um, uh, foreign uh, cinema. And so we've got... Uh, several films from 87 to 2021 uh, that were nominated, uh, which I think is a press, an impressive showing from a category that's usually pretty uh, narrowed down and filtered out. So we got to start, though, I think, with Babette's Feast, uh, which won in 1987. Uh, we got to talk about that. Um, we're going to jump ahead a little bit to a more modern era. Um, I want to just go to Suzanne Beer and talk about After the Wedding. Uh, which again is Oscar nominated, which uh, picks up interest and gets remade uh, in America in 2019, released in 2019. Uh, and if we're going to talk about Lars von Trier, we got to talk about his partner in crime, Thomas Winterberg. And so uh, there's a number of things we could go with there. Uh, we got to talk about his role in Dogma 95. But I think uh, for the purpose of this and following after the wedding, uh, we would do a double header of The Hunt and Another Round uh, because all three of those films feature. The man, the myth, the legend himself, Mads Mikkelsen. Now we got to talk about that uh, that gift to world cinema as well. So mm. that's the the way I would take this. The approach here would just to be more of a, a national cinema to kind of look at how uh, it has evolved from Dreyer to Vinterberg and and von Trier and Beer and, and this this group of kind of more avant garde storytellers. And maybe what similarities remain the same because Carl T. Dreyer was anything but, um, you know, stock director. And so I think that's uh, the way we would take it. And uh, I think some fun would be had. And I think uh, there's a lot of fun stuff to parse out there. So that, that's what I got yeah. for you. Yeah, I, I, feel good, like I've, yeah. I, I feel like I've already learned a lot about Danish cinema that I didn't know. Uh, I, I forgot that Dreyer was a, a Danish filmmaker uh, for starters. So, yeah, that sounds awesome. Yeah, let's rock. Um, very good. Yeah, so there's going to be a little bit of overlap between me and you, Arthur, because I'm going to do a kind of a Dogma '95 emphasis, and I think what I would do in a module is kind of where they were, their sort of Dogma '95 films, versus where they are now, or some of their bigger, sort of more mainstream kind of successes. Uh, because cool. clearly, Melancholia is probably the most mainstream of all the Von Trier films. And so uh, we'd obviously read uh, the uh, Vow of Chastity of Dogma 95 would be part of the text there. Um, I do have the Vow of Chastity here before me, friends. Do you want to hear it? Well, there. yeah, we've been talking We've been talking a lot about Dogma 95, and I, I, we haven't really explained what it is for anybody that might not know. So, yeah, good, please. There are, there are ten rules, ten commandments, if you will. Uh, number first, shooting must be done on location. Props and sets must not be brought in. And if a particular prop is, nece prop is necessary to a story, a location must be chosen where this prop is to be found. Number two. The sound must never be produced apart from the image or vice versa. Music must not be used unless it occurs within the scene where it is being shot. 
Number three, the camera must be handheld. Any movement or immobility attainable in the hand is permitted. The film must not take place where the camera is standing. Shooting must take place where the film takes place. Number four, the film must be in color. Special lighting is not acceptable. If there is too little light for exposure, the scene must be cut uh, or a single lamp be attached to the camera. Number five, optical work and filters are forbidden. Number six, the film must not contain superficial action. Murders, weapons, etc. must not occur. Number seven, temporal and geographic alienation are forbidden. That is to say, the film takes place here and now. Number eight, genre movies are not acceptable. Number nine, the film format must be Academy 35mm. And finally, ten, the director must not be credited. Hardy, har, har. Um... Well, there you go. And that is the sort of the manifesto from Vinterberg and Trier, von Trier, right? Correct. It's, yeah, sort of saying, this is what we're doing here and now. We're, we're making real movies, real cinema. Yes. Uh, it was kind of a joke to start with, but uh, that being said, I think we would start by looking at von Trier first, looking at uh, The Idiots. Uh, that would be the good first film, I think, to look at there. And then Melancholia as kind of his moment of arrival. Uh, then I'd use a Vinterberg. Uh, and I think uh, the celebration is the first, again, and probably the, the kind of a key uh, film from him. And so that's a good example. It was uh, Denmark's best foreign language film at the Academy Awards, uh, even though it wasn't accepted as a nominee. And uh, won a jury prize at Cannes. So it's very well thought of uh, as a film. And then the contemporary option for then will be the man, the myth, the legend, Maz Mickelson in The Hunt, uh, directed by Vinterberg. So uh, that, that film will rear its head a second time uh, from you there, Mr. Arthur Gordon. Uh, another person who signed that you might not know is Harmony Corinne. And, and so I thought that would be interesting. And his single Dogma 95 film, uh, which is Julian Donkey Boy. Uh, which features uh, Werner Herzog, among other things, uh, is an interesting film for various reasons. Uh, but it's also thinking about schizophrenia and daily lives. And so it's very, very real in, uh, in many ways. Uh, but the uh, updated Corinne film then, I think, would have to be Spring Breakers. Uh, that would be his sort of big breakout film there. And I, what we see in difference in Spring Breakers and in Melancholia, which in many ways are similar in the in the splashy visuals that those two films offer, uh, might offer an interesting counterpoint to uh, Von Trier, Corinne versus Thomas Vinterberg, who I'm going to suggest perhaps as a tentative thesis that um, Vinterberg might have been the true believer in the dogma. Interesting. Uh, I, I'm not I'm, I'm not totally beside this, but I am suspicious of it. So I guess we shall see. But uh, anyway, that's my syllabus. Um, that's your syllabus now, dear listener, which just got much, much longer. Boys, I believe. Yeah, I, 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 I there's a glaring omission in my study of, of Danish cinema. Yeah, I, I, for, I forgot the one and only uh, Nicholas Winde Griffin. Oh, of course. Um, I so, thought it at one point and didn't say anything, and then I didn't think yeah, about it again. I, I saw it earlier, and I forgot to put it on my list. We probably did the Pusher trilogy, though. I think that's there. a couple, yeah. Yeah. Maybe Valhalla Rising, just for more Mads, but I think Pusher's the one we'd go with. 
I like Fall Doesn't Hollow Rush thing during this marathon for you to pick it just because it's got such an analog to 2001. Mm. That'd be cool. Doesn't uh, does Pusher have Joel Kinnaman? No, that's that's a different crime movie. Never mind. Yeah, this is completely Danish. I don't know who's in it. Let's find out. Uh, Matt's is in all more. three of those movies, but or four of those movies. Uh, yeah, he is. The Pusher movies. Uh, he's he in all three Pusher movie. movies and in Valhalla Rising. Yeah. Oh, nice. Uh, so it looks like uh, we've got Kim Bodnia, Zlatko Burek, Laura Drebsbake, Flavko Labovich, Mads Mikkelsen. Yeah, I don't know any of these people other than Mads. Yeah, you got Mads and a bunch of Danish actors we haven't heard of. Unfortunately. <laughs> I'm probably they're they're huge in in Denmark. I'm sure. <laughs> Daneland? Are they from Daneland too? Are they Danegian? I guess. Um, I love the the, the Danegian very, people. Being very disrespectful to the fine people of Denmark. I'm just I'm, I was that was kind of my Sarah Palin uh, impersonation, but that's another conversation <laughs> for another time. <laughs> Uh, let's move on. That was just mean for no reason. Um, let's move on. I think it's time to get down to business. It's business. It's business time. I don't know what you're trying to say. You're trying to say it's time for business. It's business time. Ooh, it's business. It's business time. That's right, dear listener. And that business is, as always, analysis. You have already uttered one of the big Boogaloo's Dalton, what is the hyper object and how does it relate to melancholia? Okay, so this is sort of a big concept that I'm still wrapping my head around, and I will try to get through this, the main points as quickly as possible because there's a lot here. Uh, but basically, uh, it's this philosopher, Timothy Morton, they, they posited the idea of uh, hyper objects. Uh, Morton does object oriented ontology, which is, is the type of uh, philosophy they do basically just, uh, very gr- grounded in the, the, what is real, I guess, um, as, as far as the philosophy goes, but, um, hyper objects is this term, uh, Morton, uh, uses to describe objects that are so massively distributed. And I'm just reading from Wikipedia here because that feels like the easiest way to do this. Uh, so massively distributed in time and space as to transcend spatio-temporal specificity. Um, his examples, or their examples rather, I'm sorry, uh, uh, their examples being global warming, styrofoam, and radioactive plutonium. So those are sort of the big three that Morton throws out there. Uh, and so these are the qualities that hyperobjects tend to have. Okay, and now... Th- as I go through these, keep in mind that critics basically have said, well, hyperobjects are defined in such a way that it's so vague that anything could be a hyperobject. Uh, but I, I appreciate it at the very least a thought experiment going on trying to look at these objects that are so big that they kind of transcend our ability as human beings to, to think about uh, them in, in, a, in any measurable way. Um, so hyperobjects, are, Dustin, were you about to say something? I was not. I was going to move that from that definitional bit to ask them the question, what exactly is the hyper object of melancholia? Is it the approaching planet or is it the concept of planetary annihilation? I think it's the concept of planetary annihilation, yeah. right? It is the very idea of it. Or maybe it even is is it uh, sort of this great beast that is depression that, that uh, is so destructive yeah. for so many people. Right. Um, and that, 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 again, now we're getting into the problem. I think it's Stellan Skarsgård. Stellan Skarsgård? He's the hyper object. He could indeed be a hyper object. 
I, I think getting a limousine through a narrow road uh, where there's a curve in the road, but it's a stretch limousine, and trying to figure out when exactly you cut the wheels, I think that is the uh, the major encounter of the hyper object in the film. Something, something, camel, eye of the needle. <laughs> right. Um, I'm going to give you guys, you know, there's there's five sort of bullet points on what a hyper object is. That's going to take us too long, I think, because um, we got too many things to talk about. I'll just give you the third one, which okay. is non-local. Non-local. And I think this is maybe sort of one of the best ones to kind of help us think about this. Um, so non-local meaning that th- these objects are so massively distributed through space and time, right? They, they are distributed to the extent that their totality cannot be realized in any one manifestation. So uh, a terrible tornado uh, in uh, the Great Plains is a manifestation of climate change, but that is not climate change, right? It, it is sort of, we, we get these um, local manifestations of a non-local entity uh, is sort of one way to think about it. Right. And Morton would say, you know, that uh, global warming, and he uh, would definitely not use the term climate change. Uh, there's some discussion that you find oh, really? in his writings where he doesn't like how that um, sort of overgeneralizes the idea, but that global warming is not localized in time, space, or incident. And that's the same kind of idea, is that we have this sort of weather event, but it is part of this huge chain of weather events. Yeah. And that it's not just a thing that we're experiencing right now, it's a thing that has begun since the sort of, he, he marks the beginning of the uh, of, of climate change or global warming, beginning with the uh, Fulton's invention of the steam engine. And uh, so that, makes sense. that is when the, the beginning of the apocalypse. The end of the world occurs at beginning in the, the, the early part of the 19th century at the invention of that engine, uh, which is an interesting uh, move that he makes there. I think you've touched on one of the other things that I find interesting about this idea, and that's the, the, the they're like interobjective, right? The idea that hyperobjects are are formed by relations between lots of different objects, and I, I think you kind of touched on that just now. Yeah. I, I just wanted to, to highlight that because I think that's an interesting uh, aspect of this idea. And uh, but I, I do think you, the point's well made, though. You know, obviously this is like a geological cataclysm. It's sort of outside of our hands. We didn't know this planet was a thing. We didn't know it was real. I think there's some interesting, uh, very contemporary and topical questions that we can ask uh, about some of the reaction to uh, the arrival of the planet. But I think it is well pointed out that depression itself is sort of one of these hyper objects. Because, I think so, right? Yeah, yeah. And, and maybe maybe it's being too loose with the definition, but I, I'm with you. I think it works. Well, yeah, I think I because it's it's something that's gone on her whole life. It's something that is uh, brought on and increased by. And, and I don't know if she's got depression so much. I know that's sort of the idea that uh, Von Trier wants to convey in writing the part for Justine, but it does look a bit more like bipolar disorder to me. Uh, just on screen, if I'm going to armchair diagnose a fictional character um, on film, it looks more like that than the other. I, I, but that's, a, again, probably too fine of a hair to be splitting right now. Um, mental illness, though, as something that is incited by individual stimuli, but also something that's been long and ongoing, and that the causes are not just chemical imbalance. I think the, one of the causes of Justine's mental illness is the uh, stressful world that she's forced to live in uh, that we see yeah. with that Stellan Skarsgård character. 
Um, and well, pressures to come up with a byline while she's at the at her wedding for crying out loud. It, well, even beyond right these work anxieties and and sort of this this shallow seeming relationship, we also have a, a parents who are both lacking. Yeah, to put to put it nicely. <laughs> Um, so yeah, it's sort of a mixed bag. I, I think one aspect of sort of the depiction of mental illness in this film is the idea that Justine is more equipped to deal with the impending doom than anybody else, right? right. This is there, there's research out there. Uh, I haven't seen any of it uh, myself, but fortunately, I've mostly seen it referenced in other, uh, other uh, podcasts and other uh, things that I consume. But there's this idea, right, that uh, people who do deal with, you know, anxiety and depression, other, some other mental illnesses actually excel in, uh, you know, during catastrophes, be these war zones or natural disasters, because uh, sort of this, this preparation for catastrophic thinking makes it a little bit easier to cope with things with that, when things go wrong. We've already I run guess. the tape. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah, I've thought about this for fine. <laughs> Yeah, and again, I, I think this 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 transformation that occurs in Justine, right? Justine goes from not being able to bathe herself, uh, which is you know again what a very a very real thing that uh, happens if if you're you're coping with uh, uh, debilitating mental illness, right? She, right? she loses these these basic human functions, and by the end of the film, she's able to comfort her sister and her nephew in this this unprecedented and and, and deeply troubling situation she, she's able to bring peace and comfort to her family right she's able to comfort the people that mean a lot to her mm-hmm. um which, which is you know pretty high level human behavior <laughs> yeah to face that kind of end with dignity and with beauty i think uh that is yeah pretty powerful and uh to be able to affirm her sister's need for ritual of some sort mm-hmm. which is something we might come back to i don't know um, well, because it's it's. I think we, we I don't, maybe we don't need to. I think we can get it here because at first she scorns her sister's need for ritual. Right? Uh, she calls it stupid. Uh, I believe <laughs> she, she's kind of an asshole about it. That's right? and, and later, trying to be a little more empathetic, she says, "You know, the earth is evil. You don't need to mourn for it." Uh, but eventually, comes around to, as you say, honoring her, her sister's need for some sort of ritual, and, and maybe it is seeing. Uh, the the wee baby nephew uh, struggling with the, what's happening uh, that, that sort of does seem to be the key that brings it all together. Well, what I think the critique te- seems to be is that uh, what Charlotte Gainsborough's uh, Claire character wants is something that is sort of well worn and um, in some ways cliche mm. uh, as a set of rituals. And what Justine ends up offering is no ritual good, but let's do something that's very much our own and mm. is developing like these little tents to look for the, you know, Ant Steelbreakers uh, magic caves or whatever it is that uh, she and the, the nephew have been promising to search for most of the film. And so it, it's very much a them thing. And I, I think that's maybe something that Von Trier seems to be getting us towards is ritual good, but customized uh, for that. Mm. Instead of something, again, like, okay, let's play some Beethoven Ninth Symphony and drink a glass of wine while we sit on the porch and, you know, watch the world burn. That I, I'm not sure that the indictment of that goes away when Justine finally um, sort of acquiesces to doing something. I think it's because it, this is very much our thing now for us together. 
And then, of course, Kiefer is just completely unable to deal, right? And so the most adjusted and uh, you know, the one who's got this all together uh, is uh, the biggest failure. Well, and it shows the facade, right? Like right. he's he's so concerned with keeping up appearances in yeah. the first half of the movie, right? Yeah, I mean, yeah, it, it is all facade, right? He 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 brings in loads of supplies at one point because he's as paranoid as as is Claire, but he doesn't want to show it, right? And you know, and here's the thing: I I wonder about this movie because I I can't think about it without thinking about Don't Look Up. Which is, I get it. You know, a, a film about a similar kind of impending disaster uh, that's coming that also ends in a ceremonial meal, right? Much more traditional in that sense. And again, I think quite life affirming in uh, what is done with that uh, particular meal. But I was thinking about the sort of anticipation, denial, and uh, paranoia of uh, this film. This film seems to be uh, doing a, a slightly different register of the conversation because the the point of don't look up is we've got the prophet trying to warn everyone and no one wants to listen to the prophet uh in this film it is trusting in existing narratives assumptions that nothing can change that there's no way this can go badly right and a refusal to recognize the possibility of destruction which which seems to be I don't know a, a a different nuance of hitting the same note. Does that make sense? I, a little bit. I, I I'm actually kind of turning over in my mind now the idea that, of Justine as prophet. Right? She she mentions that we, there's a scene where she kind of reveals that I just know things. There are things yeah. that I just yeah. know. I knew how many beans were yeah. were in the the wine bottle at the wedding or whatever. Right. right? There's a couple of other things she says. Uh, and we, we have confirmation of at least two of the things she says she knows. Um, and I find that kind of interesting as far as just an idea in this film that is just sort of not explored super uh, thoroughly, but it is, is just kind of an interesting thought, if nothing else. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, what, do you, what do you think... Uh, do, do, what do you feel as far as th- this idea of Justine as prophet? Is, is there anything there for you? You, you were kind of mentioning the, the ways in which these, these two films are different. Yeah. She's really prophetic in the sense that she just, again, it's, it's more of an intuition though here, right? Mm, so yeah, okay. it, th- there's something much more deeply spiritual about this film than there is about don't look up. Don't look up seems to be not really interested in those kinds of questions. I mean, there is some general humanity kind of stuff. You can think about the Timothy Chalamet character, and uh, those kinds of, which seems to be about rounding out the totality of the human experience. This film seems to uh, be a movie that longs for something more spiritual. And again, this might have something to do with, with uh, Von Trier's brief conversion to Christianity, uh, which is roughly during about the same time period. Uh, again, a brief conversion. Uh, that takes place uh, there. So it may have something to do with that. Um, Interesting. But yeah, that, that what, what her prophecy is that she is just somehow because of just the way she's wired, she's more in tune with what's happening, right? And so she sees how many beans are in the jar and she just, again, I mean, to, to again, quote one of the douchiest rock and roll bands of all time, but to quote Tool, she just sort of knows the pieces fit. 
right? Um, <laughs> and I and I don't mean that as a joke, but there there's no, that, I, that sort of underlying spiritual intuition that seems to be part of what um, makes her a uh, particularly well equipped for this disaster. It is interesting, yeah. The, this sort of uh, ability she has to to navigate this moment. Uh, I watched uh, the the take. I don't know if you guys are familiar with with them, but uh, they're, they're a YouTube channel that does some some really solid uh, film and pop culture analysis. Uh, but they've got a great uh, video about von Trier's work as as a whole, mm. and, and they they talk about the, his tendency to depict women in ways that would make society uncomfortable. Right to. to uh, and that that goes for this film especially, right? It's sort of the the, the transgressions that uh, society is most scornful towards women about, and uh, they, they they posit that he you know he does he depicts these things and and generally sides with the women by embracing them, right? right. By by embracing their their perceived dysfunction, their their perceived wrongness. Uh, he, he sort of highlights what's maybe right with uh, what their their ideology or their actions. Uh, yeah. Anyway, I just wanted to shout that out. It was something I, I came across in my research that I, I thought was really interesting as far as co- dealing with von Trier's work. Because it, you know, I, I, what I know about some of his other films, uh, it, it seems like it can get pretty nasty. And honestly, just describing melancholia probably sounds like a dour experience. Right. Um, but it's it's you know I, I'm with you. I think it's very much not. Uh, you, did you know your boy Slavo has some thoughts on melancholia? I did not know, but that does not surprise me. What does Slavoj say about this? He's he's with us, man. He thinks it's a pretty life affirming movie. Yeah, um, yeah. He, let me uh, see if I can find it. I, I, I've written it down somewhere. Um, but the the gist of it is he 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 looks at it as uh, that the accepting of the end being near at any point, right? This this uh, idea of um, the 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 end could be nigh and we could not even realize it and he says accepting that it could you know uh very much strengthen ethical activity uh more than uh you know lead to despair uh and, and that is what we see in this film yeah and uh, anyway that's that's his take on it is is that the film sort of highlights that idea i guess to throw another bit of slavoy in there that would again thinking about this movie pairing with uh, don't look up is uh the idea that it's sort of quoted between him and frederick jameson both of them say that it's easier to contemplate the end of the world than it is to contemplate the end of capitalism and that's what we've uh, begun to do in our cinema and that's a, a hyper object in and of itself right, right? i mean in really any economic system could be um but it is it is difficult for us to to wrap our brain around these sort of titanic shifts in in, in the world, right? And they happen all the time, right? Like this, we're not we're talking about the end of the world in these sort of kind of very definitive contexts because that's what happens in this movie, like species I, I extincting, yeah, kind of destruction, it, right? Exactly. But a species goes extinct every day, basically, right? Uh, and that that is sort of the reality of of the era of humanity is a lot of life on this planet is getting blinked out. There, there is an, an ongoing catastrophe and uh, we have to find a way to come together and deal with that. However we can. So very good. I, I want to put this out just as a sort of additional research for the dear li- uh, listener, because we have talked so much about hyper objects and Timothy Morton. Uh, there is a great podcast out called immediatism. And in the Immediatism podcast, uh, the uh, host there, and I forget her name, she reads various works of critical theory, philosophical theory, uh, um, 
art manifestos and whatnot. And Timothy Morton is a regular contributor of the little essays and parts of essays uh, that are read on that show. And so uh, his essays on uh, hyperobjects, dark ecology, ecology without nature, and it seems like one other book that escapes me as a title is also uh, read in parts. Uh, on that particular podcast. So if you don't want to take your time to read a long philosophical text, but you could listen to one since you are a podcast person listening already, uh, I recommend the Immediatism podcast uh, quite a bit. There's a lot of great stuff in there. There's a great ecological text I'd never heard of called Merlin with a Machine Gun. Uh, and I <laughs> listened to it and it was amazing. Uh, so there's great stuff out there to be found and uh, interesting um, curation of, very again, various sort of theoretical critical texts uh, that inform media studies and just general sort of uh, political engagement with the world. I hope you guys will uh, come see my new band, Merlin with a Machine Gun, uh, when we, we have our first gig. That is a good band name. It absolutely is. <laughs> um, there's, there, there's actually another podcast I'll go ahead and throw out because this is where I first became acquainted with uh, Hyper Objects. It's, it's a show that you and I both dabble with, Dustin. It's, uh, it could happen here, oh, right uh, on, a daily yeah. podcast. Uh, yeah, it's, uh, there's an episode. I forget which of the hosts uh, has this episode because there's a couple of hosts on that show. Uh, but one of the hosts has a, an episode about Hyper Objects and liminal spaces. And uh, re- really good stuff and a, a very quick like 40-minute tops primer on hyper objects and, and uh, along with some other related ideas. And my advice is listen to that one first. And then if you want more, you can go to the source material at immediatism. Uh, there you go. There have, you go. Basically it's like an audiobook version of essays. It's cool. Well, since we're talking about academics and such, maybe we should talk about John and uh, the idea of uh, fake science and real science, right? This this, yeah. this idea he brings up. I, I don't think there's anything there, at least nothing that speaks to our current condition. No, I don't think so either. Uh, I couldn't. I kept trying to think of an analog, right? I mean, the, you too? there's okay. a way in which this movie like makes you go, oh, I got to think about the pandemic, right? Mm-hmm. But it, it's not really quite the same thing, you know? Yeah, I guess the only way in which it's the same thing is you have different people responding differently yes. to the same catastrophe. Right. And maybe the people who are the most buttoned, seem the most buttoned up are uh, the least buttoned up under the surface. But I, I, th- that might be all we have. Yeah, it seems to be having something more to do with class than it does to have to do with science or scientism, you know. I Well, I, you know what? I wondered about class too, right? Because these people are depicted as obscenely wealthy. Oh, yeah, like, crazy bougie, yeah guillotine wealthy uh, <laughs> to, to put it bluntly um but, but i don't know that there's any real class analysis here right i think it is just sort of because it would be cool to have the wedding at a castle slash golf course right and it'd be their home as well how many holes we have here you know i just was such a weird thing to be proud of um and again contemporary politics comes to mind with that particular line as well Mm, uh, sure, sure. Uh, of course. And so there's a weird way in which this tech, this I, I think about reader response theory a little bit uh, with this film. And if you're not aware, dear listener, reader response theory is just the uh, the process by which the meanings of texts change over time as audiences change. And I don't have a specific 2022 reading of Melancholia, but uh, I will tell you for sure that my experience of watching this film is different this time watching it than it was last time I watched it five years ago before the pandemic. And um, it's, it's just, 
there there's a thing there um i don't know if we have to, anything more to say about than that other than science denying and conspiracy theories and again bougie people in their golf courses finding comforts in the strangest things um yeah well you know it, it sort of does find us on the flip side of the coin right it does find us back in the um the Justine saying life is the life on earth is equal, yeah. right? Which again is, I don't think where the film ends up, but you do have to wade through those very real considerations, right? right. To, to get somewhere a little bit more uh, pleasant as far as the conclusion goes. Well, and to come full circle back to Timothy Morton, the Anthropocene era is going to end at some point. And that, well, and that's what Slavo brings up, right? right. Is you have to accept that the world always changes right at some level and, and i think you know we'll, we'll we'll go out maybe on on uh slavo and morton because they're smarter than we are um yeah that's that's something you got to take seriously and and you know but don't let it ruin your day don't let melancholia both the the condition and this movie ruin your day uh, this is a tough movie to watch if, if you've got a, a gentle brain like i do um it didn't it didn't put me down but it definitely stayed with me i watched yeah. this movie for the podcast uh, over a week ago maybe two weeks ago now and it, it's really stayed with me in, in a good way uh but uh, you know uh, we've talked about some heavy topics tonight so i just say uh, you know even the smartest people uh, sort of have a uh, a positive outlook on these ideas we've talked about that's that's something to uh to keep in mind absolutely absolutely well with that then let's render a verdict what shall we do with melancholia shall we uh crash it into the sun <laughs> shelf, <laughs> shelf or trash what is our verdict what do you say arthur shelf or trash with melancholia what do you want to do with it i don't know um i'm very torn on this one i think i would very tenderly sit it on the shelf is where I'd go with it. A tender shelving. Very good, very good. What would you say there, Dalton Stewart? I would absolutely put it on the shelf. Yeah, this is this is a pretty fantastic film. Uh, and one that I think uh you know, revisiting would would yield good good results. And yeah. and uh probably the last Von Trier movie I'll I'll visit for some time. Although I, I'm yeah. kind of interested in Dogville. That that's one that appeals to me. Sort of it's it's weird uh Is that the one about the skateboarders? Design. No, that's a that's a different movie. Yeah. That's Lords of Dogtown. Uh, Dogville is like a high school production of Our Town, where right. all the locations are. It's very Dogma ninety five, and as far as uh, you know, it's a period piece, but it's it's trying to bring as few props to the table as possible. Very austere kind of uh, avant garde theater um, is what it seems yeah. like more than it does avant garde film. Does it also star a collie? <laughs> <laughs> uh, no. Uh, I'm also going to say Shelf. Uh, it's probably my favorite Von Trier movie. Anyway, so there you go, friends. Um, those are our thoughts on uh, that there movie. Um, Dalton, tell them how to have a conversation via the other magical means of social media. Yeah, if you want to, if you want to keep this going, you absolutely can. Uh, you can email us at goodtrashgenrecast at gmail dot com. That's the name of the show you're listening to at gmail dot com. Uh, that's your long form feedback, and we'd love to hear it. Uh, you know, uh, uh it, it's open feel free. Uh, if, if you are on social media, I'm so sorry. You can, <laughs> you can make it, you can make it a little bit easier by following us on Twitter at good trash media. That's sort of the only relevant place to, to follow us on social media. It's the only one we really keep updated these days. Uh, but we're, we're on there, you know, we're hanging out, we're posting links to the show and we're, we're, we're having a good old time. 
Um, we're posting links to the other shows uh, that are, you know, in our orbit, like The Wheel of uh, Randy with Dan Wade, uh, who just had a very big get on the show. Um, you should go check that out. Uh, had a big interview. Um, I, I won't spoil it here. I'll, I'll let you go oh, find really? it. Oh, really? Yeah, I'll just I'll just say he had a big one. Okay. We'll leave it at that. Uh, if you want to help support the show, you're more than welcome to do that. It's it's definitely not necessary. It, it's cute if you want to do it, though. That's patreon.com forward slash GTM if you want to help keep the lights on. Uh, people love our, uh, our uh, big time uh, Blu-ray situation, Arthur. I don't know if you know this. Uh, we've got a new donor <laughs> in, in the form of our friend Kirsten because... Uh, uh, my, my dear wife can't, can't stop singing your praises. Uh, people love Arthur's, uh, uh, Blu-ray picks. He's, he's great at it. Um, so that, that's, you know, we're not making any bonus content right now. Uh, but there's a whole ton of bonus content you can go enjoy if you are a patron. Uh, but the, the real reward out there right now, uh, is, is a DVD or Blu-ray, depending on your tier, uh, selected by our very own Arthur Gordon. Um, you know, we think it's a pretty cool idea. Look, Absolutely. I just sent everybody a copy of Brigsby Bear because it's one of the best movies of the last <laughs> Hey, that honestly, that makes sense that you just sent everybody Brigsby Bear for this one. And I'm so glad I own Brigsby Bear now, uh, or at the very least, my wife does. I uh, can't wait to rewatch it, honestly. I'm one with you. One of the best movies of the last decade. No, no question. Um, I'm going to go ahead and spoil it. Uh, I will tell you who Dan got. It was Andy Kindler, which I think is pretty cool. That um, is very cool. That's why I wanted to go and spoil it. Yeah, it, it, I was going to keep it a secret and be all cute about it. And it's Andy Kindler, and that's pretty sick. Uh, yeah. So go check it, check that out. Uh, Dan got a good interview. Um, that, that's sort of the exciting news around these parts right now. And that's the social media. And that has been our marathon uh, anti-trash 2022 talking science fiction. And I think we might be doing a little bit more science fiction talk. Is that right? What's happening, Arthur? Yeah. Yeah, so we're moving out of anti-trash, and we're diving headfirst into the dumpster, uh, because next week, uh, we go one-on-one with Mars Attacks. So we're keeping it sci-fi, but we are definitely not going anti-trash. That is a That's show. Right. No, so. Dogma 90, no Dogma 95 rules here. We love the genre, baby. <laughs> so, all right, dear listener, that's what's next. You keep watching, we'll keep talking, and we'll yodel at you next week. Uh, we'll see you next time. I'm not sure.